Hi, welcome to the show. As a financial advisor, I'm constantly regaled by stories of the big stock winners of the day, the so-called 10-baggers, you know, which is a term coined by the legendary Fidelity fund manager, Peter Lynch, who would talk about those stocks that he would buy that would go up 10 times, tenfold. But today, I want to make the case against reaching for the stars and just make the case to you to reach for mediocrity in your investments. Now, I know no one ever talks about the merits of reaching for mediocrity, but I'm going to do so. So please stay with me on this. I plan to use some data in my commentary today that came from Craig Israelson, who wrote an article titled, Are Average Returns Enough for Clients? And it was published in financialplanning.com. In his article, Craig compares annual returns from the S&P 500 index versus a portfolio of seven basic other different types of assets. Now, we call these assets asset classes, and they consist of large cap stocks, small cap U.S. stocks, international stocks, commodities, real estate, U.S. bonds, and cash. Seven types of asset classes. And to further my reaching for mediocrity, I'm going to call this portfolio the average portfolio. Now, the author looked at what may have happened if one invested an equal amount in each class over a 44-year period from 1970 to 2013. And he compared it to the S&P 500, which, as you probably know, is comprised of 500 large U.S. companies. Now, remember, the S&P 500 is a capitalization-weighted, unmanaged index made up of stocks only. The data that Craig presented in his article showed that the annual returns from the S&P 500 were better than the average portfolio 55% of the time. So in the 44 years, the S&P 500 beat the average portfolio 24 out of the 44 years. And sometimes the S&P 500 was way ahead of the average portfolio. Like in 1998, for example, it beat the average portfolio by about 27.5%. And furthermore, over the 24 years that the S&P was ahead, it beat the average portfolio by an average of 8.3% per year. Now, that is a pretty massive margin. But here's the key. Despite those 24 years of solid outperformance, the two portfolios delivered about the same average annual returns over the 44-year period, with the S&P up 10.4% annually and the average portfolio up 10.3%. So what gives? How is this possible? How is a portfolio that includes bonds and real estate and commodities and cash return the same or nearly the same as the S&P 500? Well, it turns out that the S&P 500 had nine losing years, while the average portfolio had five losing years. Now, there's not much there to explain the strange performance differences, but looking a little deeper, we find the answer not in the frequency of the declines, but in the magnitude of the declines. You see, the losing years for the S&P 500 were dramatically worse. The S&P 500 average decline was 15.2% versus only 8.7% for the average portfolio. That 6.5% average disparity is what makes all the difference. Now, most of us would likely jump to the conclusion that 24 up years with an outperformance of 8.3% per year, would easily beat nine down years of 6.5% annual underperformance. 
But compounding works a little differently because negative returns damage a portfolio way more disproportionately than positive returns. And here's a simple example. And I know you've heard me say this before. If you start with $100 and you lose 50%, you're down to 50 bucks. But to get back to 100, you need a gain of $50. And earning $50 on $50 requires a 100% gain to make up for that loss. So negative returns are much harder to dig out of. Do you see what I mean? So even though the S&P 500 frequently outperformed the average portfolio, those gains were largely undermined by the four extra down years and the extra depths of those down years. Investors should also understand that an average portfolio will probably never outperform a single sector in a given year. It's one reason so many people have trouble sticking with an asset-allocated portfolio. It's much easier and it's more fun to chase popular stocks that are going up right now. It really feels like you're onto something, especially when you start making money this way. The problem is that when the bad times come, and they always do, your losses may wipe out all your gains and then some. Now, I hate to be a spoil sport, but the trophy goes to the tortoise, not the hare. Consider being comfortable with slow and steady gains over those flashy returns washed out by horrible years. And while it's natural to want to chase top-performing sectors, doing so is really an exercise in folly, which most of us humans are susceptible to until we see the logic of a well-diversified portfolio. Now, I chose this topic today because I thought it was pretty timely. 2016 was a good year for equities. The S&P 500 was up around 12% last year versus about an 8.3% return for your basic generic asset-allocated portfolio. Once again, some would view that difference to be disappointing, but I'd urge you to fight the temptation and consider sticking with a well-diversified portfolio for the long run. Pick the plodding but victorious tortoise over the running, skipping, and jumping hare. And in addition to what I've said here today, maybe you'll even be able to sleep a little better at night. This is Steve Pomerantz, and you're listening to The Steve Pomerantz Show. I read a quote the other day from Sir John Templeton. He's the founder of the Templeton Funds and a man that's considered to be the father of the mutual fund industry. He was speaking at a conference many years ago and was asked a question by a young woman during the Q&A session. She said, Mr. Templeton, I have recently come into a small inheritance and would like to know when to begin investing the money. He answered her question very simply but profoundly. He said, invest as soon as you have the money. Now, that sounds a little silly on the surface, but it goes deeper than that. He was pointing out to her that time and the magic of compounding would have the greatest influence over her wealth creation than almost any other factor. I learned this when I first entered the business many years ago. Older people would come into my office with many millions of dollars worth of investments. And these people were not born to wealth. They had average paying jobs, but they had accumulated it over the many years. I would see positions of many thousands of shares of General Electric, of Exxon, Procter & Gamble, and the like, and notice that the cost basis, you know, the price per share that they paid for these companies, was like a dollar or three dollars per share. And I didn't understand at first how they could have purchased these shares at such low prices. 
Was it possible that magically they were only investing in bear markets and they had unusual courage and foresight? And in further research and digging, it occurred to me that these people had bought and held these companies over many, many years. These companies had split their shares over and over again for the 20 or 30 years that the client had owned them. So here's how that works. Every time a company splits its shares, let's say it splits two for one, he would receive twice the shares and the company price would fall by half. So in effect, he's not really making any money. But if you do this four times over a 20 or 30 year period and you split two for one, the company's stock cost would fall from $50 a share to $3 a share, plus their share count would increase 16-fold. Now, this does not automatically produce any wealth, but if you have great companies and you hold them over a long period of time, it just may do so over time. Anyway, the point is that the answer was that the earlier you start, the better off you will be. Remember that the best time to invest is when you have the money. Waiting will cost you very dearly over the long run. This is the Steve Pomerantz Show, and I'm Steve Pomerantz. Mohamed El Arian is well-known and very well-respected. He's the chief economic advisor at Allianz SC, chairman of the President's Global Development Council, and he was chief executive and co-chief investment officer of PIMCO. His books include The Only Game in Town, Central Bank's Instability and Avoiding the Next Collapse, which we've discussed with him on the show before. And I'd like to welcome him back to discuss current market conditions and the economy. Welcome back, Mohammed. Thank you. It's a huge pleasure and an honor to be back with you. Thank you so much. You know, for years, people have been talking about the new normal. We've heard that over and over again from pundits and from economists alike. What is the new normal? The new normal evolved into having three major characteristics. The first is that economic growth would be unusually low for a very long time, meaning that the economy wouldn't bounce back in a cyclical manner from the global financial crisis, but rather growth would be weak mm-hmm. and people would be surprised repeatedly by how weak growth would be. The second element is that central banks would take on enormous policy responsibility And that would be good news for markets because they would decouple markets from the underlying weakness in the economy. Uh And the third element had to do with politics that that may get messy, but it wouldn't fundamentally alter the growth and market equation. Yeah, so there's a lot there. So normally when economies go into recession, it kind of corrects a lot of the imbalances and you get this kind of V, this bounce to, you know, stronger economy after that happens, but the new normal was there was an economic muted response. We had slow growth. And then the central bank stepped in and kind of stabilized the economy and put liquidity into the economic system. So stock markets did really well, which decoupled the returns on the stock markets, didn't really reflect what was going on in the real economy. And then the other aspect was politics. So now you recently wrote an article and said that the new normal is over. So what does that mean? 
Yeah, I, I said that it's the new normal is feeding the elements of its own destruction, and that within the next two years, we would have to pivot either to much higher growth or to something much worse. And that has to do with the contradictions that are fueled by growing complex economic systems at low speed and having the benefits of that growth go to a small segment of the population. You just simply get too many economic, financial, political, and institutional contradictions. So one of those drivers of this pivot from low growth to much higher growth has been, you know, the promises of the new administration, this idea of lowering taxes and lowering regulation and infrastructure spending. So do you think a lot of this pivot banks on the success of that? And that's one scenario, yes. The reason why we're even talking about it is because we've had an internal political disruption. And that's because people get angry when their economy grows in a slow and non-inclusive manner. Mm -hmm. So you've had the disruption here in terms of the election of Donald Trump as president. You've had it in the UK with Brexit. You have it in other parts of Europe with the growth of the anti-establishment movements. Mm -hmm. So the first element is you get an internal political disruption. The second element is you get a choice either to pivot towards pro-growth policies or to slip into nationalism and protectionism. Mm. What we've seen so far from the Trump administration is more of the former in terms of announcements than the latter. We've had both, but the former has dominated the latter. And that's why the markets initially embraced the Trump rally and took stocks significantly higher. Wow. Okay. Well, the Trump administration also has played the nationalist card quite strongly as well, but their main focus and the market's main reaction has been with the agenda of, as I mentioned, lower taxes, regulation, and infrastructure spending. In your view, how's that going? Slowly. We've seen, we've heard, I should say more accurately, the announcements, but we're lacking two things. One is detailed design, and policymaking is complicated. So it's really important to see what the details look like. Because remember, you could have good tax reform, or you can have bad tax reform. You could have good deregulation, you could have bad deregulation, similarly with infrastructure. So detailed design matters. And then the next step after that is sustained implementation. And the reason why the markets paused after the initial enthusiasm is because announcements haven't been followed as yet with detailed design and with implementation. Yeah, so the first major legislation that came out of the chute was the healthcare legislation. We know what happened with that. And then there is concern that taxes are next, and that's going to be perhaps a difficult strategy to accomplish. What are your thoughts? I mean, it's really early in the Trump administration. I mean, it hasn't even been 100 days yet, and you know, so many people are forecasting the death knell of this and that, but what do you think? Yeah, I think it's early days, and one has to be careful not to extrapolate too much. Having said that, healthcare signaled two things. One is that the sequencing was wrong. Healthcare is inherently complicated, has a very long history. Going with something so complicated first meant it was a higher risk strategy. 
The second element of the healthcare issue is that it showed that you can't go from Republican majorities to clear sailing for legislation, that that doesn't follow automatically. And that for the market was a bit of a surprise because the markets assumed that with the Republicans now having majority in both houses of Congress, that gridlock was behind us. And we got a reminder that politics is a lot more complicated than what simple numbers tell you. A lot of people are talking about the current high levels of the stock market. People sense that we saw this big run, but we really haven't seen the earnings accelerating yet to justify this large increase since the election. Many are quoting Schiller's CAPE index, which shows it as being at the highest level since 08 or 07 and 1999, which were these big tops of the market, which were followed by some pretty significant declines. What is your thinking about the current level of the U.S. stock market relative to earnings? It remains decoupled from fundamentals, and that's what the Schiller Index and other measures pick up. And that's because of two anomalies. The first anomaly is the difference between what economists call soft data and hard data. Soft data is sentiment, and household sentiment and corporate sentiment is off the charts, but it's yet to be reflected in the hard data. The hard data is actual production, wages, employment. So the first big distinction is between soft data and hard data. The second big distinction is between financial risk-taking and economic risk-taking. Financial risk-taking is, again, very high. And you see this in the stock market. Economic risk-taking, which is are companies willing to invest in new facilities, in new equipment, hasn't yet picked up. And there's a reason for that. Financial investors believe that they can change their mind and change their portfolios. Yeah. Companies know that their decisions are much longer term. So when you put these two things together, the market is really betting on first, good soft data becoming good hard data, and second, economic risk-taking picking up to be more like financial risk-taking. Stay with us. I'm going to be back with Mohammed El-Aryan in a moment. We're going to continue to discuss the stock market. We're going to talk about interest rates and also the prospect for a pivot or the pickup in the economy going through 2017 through 2018. Are there any topics we're missing, guests we haven't thought of that you'd like on the show, questions you want answered? Contact us anytime at stevepomeranz.com. That's Steve, P-O-M-E-R-A-N-Z.com. Simply go to stevepomeranz.com and click contact to write us anytime, anywhere. Articles on the site you liked or didn't? Want to share your two cents? Comment on any of our guest interviews and tell us. You know, this show's purpose is to empower and protect you on all things financial. We'd love to hear your feedback so we can make sure we're getting you the information you need to live your one best financial life. Contact us at any time at stevepomeranz.com. That's Steve, P-O-M-E-R-A-N-Z.com.
This is the Steve Pomerantz Show, and I'm Steve Pomerantz. I'm back with Mohammed El Aryan. Of course, he is very well known, very well respected. And we're talking about interest rates. We're talking about the stock market. We're talking about the economy in this new age that we're in. Welcome back to the segment, Mohammed. Thank you. In the last segment, we were talking about high stock prices, and you mentioned that these prices have been decoupled from the underlying economy for quite some time. The Fed is starting to raise interest rates again, so I think that's a sign that the central bank is starting to change its policy, and they recently announced that they're going to start selling off some of these mortgages that they bought up during the crisis in order to stabilize those markets and get them back out into the marketplace and into private hands. What is that going to mean if, number one, if they're going to do that, does that bring this decoupling idea, does that bring the stock market and the economy back into reality? Well, fundamentally, what you're hearing from the Fed is we want to stop being the only game in town. We want to get out of this experimental policy stance that has seen us keep interest rates extremely low and has seen us use our balance sheet to influence markets. And the Fed is seeing a window for it to start its normalization process. It has already started raising interest rates, and I think we're going to get at least, and I stress at least, two more hikes this year. And it's now talking about also getting out of the business of buying securities in the marketplace. It's talking about stopping from reinvesting proceeds from its asset purchase program. And that's an mm-hmm. important change. Yeah. What does it mean for markets? Less support, but markets also realize that the Fed wants to exit or normalize in a very orderly fashion. So there's no market panic yet because markets still believe that the Fed will, has their back covered. I like that put that many people talk about, that things go really bad, the Fed will come in and kind of save the day. But do you think this is going to add to a pickup in volatility for the late 2017, 2018? I do. I think that the three elements that we talked about, which were part of this new normal where growth was muted, but financial volatility was low, I think all three are at risk. Mm -hmm. One, we are either going to pivot depending on whether the pro-growth or the stagflationary protectionist policies dominate here and in Europe. We're either going to pivot on the growth to higher or lower, but we're not going to say where we are. Second, led by the Fed, but also gradually the ECB and the Bank of Japan, central banks are going to be less supportive when it comes to repressing financial volatility. Mm. Third, I think the politics, especially in Europe, is starting to influence the economics. And you see this in Brexit. Brexit was the outcome of an anti-establishment movement that is now going to change the UK's trading relations with its most important partner. And that involves a lot of uncertainty. You know, I'm glad you brought that up because from my vantage point as an investment advisor and manager, you know, I've noticed that foreign markets, the returns dollar-based of developed countries and even emerging markets have outperformed the U.S. stock market this year. What do you account for that? Catch-up and rotation. So they lagged in the initial stages of the Trump rally. So the day after the election till about mid-December, two sectors took off based on the Trump victory, financials and industrials. And the other sectors, particularly foreign markets and technology lagged. And then the marketplace at the end of December and January said, well, wait a minute. If the outlook is going to be that much better, does it make sense to have such a discrepancy? And the answer is no. 
So what you got is a rotation where financial and industrials haven't gone anywhere, but overseas markets, including emerging markets and tech, have had a very good three months. Mm -hmm. So what I think you're seeing is simply a catch-up phase, Steve, whereby the difference between the segments had gotten too much for what actually was taking place. So not necessarily the underlying financials of the corporations that make up those markets, but just more of a rotation to more attractively priced assets. Is that accurate? Correct. This so far is a movement led by markets discounting the potential impact of a better economy mm-hmm. and more money coming into the marketplace because of repatriation of capital based on policy announcements. It's not yet based on policy implementation. And that's a very important distinction that investors should realize. If you're buying the market here, it's because you have high confidence that Congress and the Trump administration will deliver pro-growth measures. Yeah. So emerging markets have also exceeded even developed markets. Is there anything else going on in emerging markets that's different than developed economies like the U.S. and Europe? A couple of things. One is that they lagged even more. So in their case, the lag was not just a few months, but was a few years. And what you're seeing is, again, a catch-up. But there's a second element, is that people are realizing that most emerging markets are much better prepared for a Fed interest rate cycle. Uh. They have ample reserves. Mm -hmm. They have lowered the dollar denomination of their debt. Mm -hmm. And importantly, they have reduced their overall indebtedness relative to GDP. So from a sovereign perspective, people realize that emerging markets are better prepared for an interest rate hike. So in a sense, they're safer financially to invest in than they were years ago when they they had much higher debt, more dollar reserves, and dollar movement could hurt them. They're in a better position financially. Correct. Now, that is true as an average. I think one also has to be careful in terms of specifics. So if you look at a Mexico, it's much better off. But if you look at a Venezuela, it's much worse off. So investors have to be careful in terms of differentiating between different countries when they go into emerging markets, much more so than in the past. My guest is Mohamed al Arian, and we're talking about the markets. We're talking about world economies. Uh, Mohamed, interest rates have been very, I think, unusual this year with, on the one hand, very short-term interest rates, which are controlled by the Fed have been rising because the Fed is raising rates. And as you mentioned, you think they're going to continue to raise rates two more times. But the part of the interest rate market, which is not controlled by the government, which would be longer term bonds like the 10-year treasury and the 30-year treasury, instead of going up in yield to anticipate what could be higher growth, while they initially went up in yield, they've actually come back down quite a bit. So you've got this flattening of the yield curve, which is a technical term, meaning that short-term rates are rising, long-term rates are falling. And that has some implications for financial companies and for you know, other businesses that you know, use interest rates in order to fund economic growth. What's going on there? Two things are going on, Steve. First, it's the influence of the rest of the world. When our rates started going up after the Trump and the view that reflation, higher growth and high inflation was likely, money got 
pulled in from Europe and Japan. And that money tends to go to segments of the yield curve that are not controlled by Fed policies. So beyond five years. So that had a depressing effect on interest rates as short-term rates went up. Mm-hmm. The second element is what market participants call technicals, which is a fancy word for how the market is positioned. And the market was positioned for yields to go higher. So when yields started going lower, certain market participants started losing money. And when they lose money, they close their yeah. positions, mm-hmm. which accelerates the dampening effect on longer dated yields. I think that both effects are running their course and that within the next few weeks and months, we're going to see a return to a more normal yield curve than what we've had in the last few weeks. So you don't think that the lower interest rates on the longer term bonds is a vote, let's say, by the bond market that we're going to be back to this low growth, low inflation scenario? I do not. I think it's more the influence of technicals and foreign flows. And if they were right in terms of levels, because remember, you have a 10-year at 2.30, that's very low. So if they were right in terms of levels, then the Fed is making a big policy mistake. I don't think that's the case. Okay. One final question. We only have about a minute left. You know, Warren Buffett has been quoted as saying that stock prices are are high, but we're not in a bubble because of low interest rates and, you know, the level of the cost of risk-free money. What would happen if, as interest rates go up and the cost of money gets more expensive and the comparatives between the stock market and risk-free rates narrow, is that negative for the stock market? It is if the rates are not reflecting a better economy. So think of it as a race, a race between normalizing interest rates and generating the higher income and the higher growth that this economy is capable of. Mm -hmm. And depending on who wins that race, the stock market is either fair to somewhat cheap if growth wins, to being expensive if interest rates win the race. You know, it's like a rocket trying to leave the earth. It's got to hit acceleration, escape velocity, otherwise it's going to fall back down to earth because gravity will pull it back down. It sounds kind of a similar thing. We better get that higher growth or else it's going to kind of collapse on itself. Not to use the word collapse, but it's probably not going to bode well for earnings and the economies in the future. Final word? You're absolutely correct. And investors, therefore, should be a little bit more cautious. And to the extent that they want to take more risk, they should take it in sectors that have lagged rather than sectors that have led Mm -hmm. the recent rally. Buy low, sell high. (laughs) My guest, Mohamed El Arian, of course, uh, well-known. He's the Chief Economic Advisor for Allianz and a friend of the show. Thank you once again for joining us, Mohammed. Thank you so much. And to join this conversation again, don't forget to go to stevepomerantz.com where we list this audio segment plus transcripts plus a summary of what we discussed here today. Thank you once again, Mohammed. Thank you. Terry Story and Real Estate Roundup is next. This is the Steve Pomerantz Show, and I'm Steve Pomerantz. It's time for Real Estate Roundup. This is the time every single week we get together with noted real estate agent Terry Story. Terry is a 28-year veteran with Coldwell Banker located in Boca Raton, Florida. Welcome back to the show, Terry. Thanks for having me, Steve. New homebuyers. 
The reports say act now before prices go up. What's going on? Yeah, this is something I wasn't aware of, Steve. The cost of building materials jumped 25% year to year, which I had no idea. Yeah. I just thought, you know, supply and demand. Mm -hmm. That's why new housing is going up. Yeah, but there's a reason for that. And most of that is lumber because the United States and Canada are arguing about a contract to renegotiate a contract and negotiations fell apart. So availability of lumber is in relatively short supply, which has caused the price to go up. So hopefully they'll get that fixed. Yeah, I, I didn't realize normalize that. Normalize it, yeah. I thought that was interesting. And then, you know, the NAHB, Wells Fargo Market Index builders are citing that the problems that they're seeing is cost and availability of labor. Which is going up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, the cost availability of developing of lots, impact fees, building materials, regulations, all of these items are contributing to the prices rising as well. Yeah, so the cost and availability of labor. So labor costs are going up and there's only a certain amount of labor for electricians and the like out there. And if there's an awful lot of building, that causes a constraint. So that makes them able to charge higher fees. Also, developed lots are disappearing, of course, as builders are finding everything they can find, every (laughs) postage stamp, and they're building on it, especially in this area. Oh, I know. And other things, we talked about building material prices and the like. So there's lots of reasons that prices are rising. So just in that case, prices seem to be going up. But also, we're starting to see possibility of mortgage rates ticking up a little bit here. I want to talk to you about that a little bit. A matter of fact, one of the questions that was asked last week was, I'm thinking about buying a house. Are mortgage rates going to march steadily higher? What are you seeing out there, Terry? Well, you know, it's always hard to say because we know mortgage rates don't usually rise in tandem with the Fed's increase. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they actually do the, they do the opposite direction. That's right. Long-term mortgages tend to track the rate of the 10-year treasury, which in turns is influenced by a whole variety of factors which include investors' expectations, future inflation, global demands, et cetera. So I don't think it's going to steadily march up. I just don't see it marching up steadily. Well, first of all, you know, one thing that nobody should ever do is predict interest rates. You just can't predict them. But I don't think a lot of people understand what you just said. The fact that short-term rates, which are controlled by the Fed and control the cost of overnight lending between banks, it does affect you know, corporate borrowing costs that are tied to the prime rate or tied to this rate called LIBOR. But those are all short-term variable rates. Mortgage rates, as you said, are based on the 10-year treasury. And the 10-year treasury, I believe, is more influenced by expectations about inflation than really most other factors, although there are many other factors. So inflationary expectations are very important to a 10-year security. Because if you are going to loan money for 10 years, you'd really want to know what inflation is going to be because it's going to eat away at your fixed return. Sure. And what we've really seen was when rates were increased last week, we did see a little bump higher in the 10-year yield, but now we're seeing it to come back down. So we're not really seeing a material change in 10-year yields. So I don't think we're seeing a material change in mortgage rates as well. So a little primer for all of you out there. So when you think about buying a house, watch that as the economy picks up, And we start to see perhaps increases in inflation in other areas, not just select areas like housing, which have its own, you know, series of constraints, but across the board, then I think you're going to start to see a pickup in mortgage rates. I know it's been so long. I remember when the interest rates were like 
Gosh, we even thought they were low at yeah. 7%. I know. It seemed pretty reasonable at 7%. I know. I remember my first home was at 7 and I'm yeah. like, wow, that's yeah. reasonable. Buy, lock in. And now 7%. Whew. And when I entered into the investment business, which was 1981, so long ago, <laughs> mortgage rates were 12% and 13%. Wow. And basically the economy was pretty much shut down because really nobody could borrow any money. However, savers were loving that. Oh, yeah. Two and a half year CDs at 15%. I mean, can you even imagine that? But of course, inflation was running just very, very high as well. So the net you know, return after inflation wasn't all that great. You can't have it both ways. <laughs> no, you really can't. You can't. Hey, here's another mortgage question. Let's say that I can't get a mortgage due to something called thin credit. Have you heard of that before? Absolutely. You know, basically there's people out there that pay cash for everything. They don't believe in credit cards, so they don't have really any proof, you know, that they're worthy of lending money to because they don't have a credit yeah. history. Yeah. And there are ways to work around that because I have seen people being turned down just because they don't have any credit cards or established credit. Some of the things you can do is pay by check. For example, if you're renting, show 12 months worth of checks paid on time on a regular basis. But having thin credit basically means your credit invisible. You're, you're under the radar and Lenders aren't comfortable lending yeah. to someone that they don't know what the credit history is going to look like. Yeah, I guess the first thing is you got to get on the grid. Right. Right. If you're paying cash for everything and you're under, you know, you're under the radar, the banks don't know how to deal with that. So they're not going to give you credit because they don't know who you are because you're not on the grid. So that's number one, you know, start doing some transactions. You mentioned writing checks. Right. And you can do it for your rent, insurance, childcare, okay. utilities, cell phones, cable TV. Mm-hmm. You know, just but save all those documents and be able to prove that you are credit worthy. Get yourself a credit card, even if it has a very low limit and pay it off and show that you are a responsible person and you'll start to get the attention of banks, especially if you're really starting to consider, hey, I want to buy a house in two or three or four years. It's really time. Uh, I know you're faking it. And the irony of the whole thing is that you, you're probably in pretty good financial shape or you could be. And yet, because you're not transacting the way business is done. People don't know that. Banks don't know that. So they're not going to give you money. So it's kind of an irony right? in my view. But get on the grid. That's the lesson of the day. <laughs> exactly. Get on the grid. Get on the grid. My guest as always is Terry Story. Terry is a 28-year veteran with Coldwell Banker located in Boca Raton, Florida. And she can be found at terrystory.com. Thanks a lot, Terry. Thanks for having me, Steve. SteVePomerantz.com now features each week's show in shareable individual segments. Busy at work and want to come back to the show later? No problem. Every segment has a full summary of what was discussed, along with a transcription of the interview. You can read or listen to one of my commentaries. Hey, is there something I mentioned on air you want to find on our site? Well, you can search for it. So check it out and let us know what you think. We'd love to hear your thoughts on what you liked or what you didn't. You can request topics you want us to talk about and ask us questions. We'll get back to you, promise. And you can like us on Facebook where you'll find out about upcoming events and subscribe to our podcast. It's all there at stevepomeranz.com. That's steve, P-O-M-E-R-A-N-Z dot com.
This is Steve Pomerantz, and you're listening to The Steve Pomerantz Show. My next guest is a young man and a full-time real estate investor. He's owner of Bridge Properties, and he's also the founder of a website by the name of BehindTheDeals.com. And it's a website where he analyzes high-profile real estate deals and extracts the practical lessons for his readers. I'm pretty impressed with his work, and I asked him to join me today to discuss just one of his articles profiling a fascinating purchase by Carl Icahn of a busted Las Vegas hotel deal that was purchased after the crash of 2008. His name is Josh Barukim, and he's with me today. Welcome to the show, Josh. Thanks for having me on. So a lot of my listeners are in South Florida, and they're going to know the name of this deal because it was from the people who bought the iconic Fountain Blue Hotel in Miami Beach, and this was the Fountain Blue of Las Vegas, which they were trying to develop. How did this story begin? Who were the players, and how did Carl Icahn get into the mix here? Sure. This story begins in 2005, where Turnberry Associates, a South Florida-based development company, acquired the Fountain Blue Miami Beach. Mm -hmm. After it acquired the Fountain Blue Miami Beach, Turnberry Associates planned a billion-dollar renovation of the Miami Beach Hotel, along with a brand-new 4,000-room sister hotel on the Las Vegas Strip. Mm -hmm. After two years of planning, in 2007, the hotel in Las Vegas finally broke ground. Two years later, in 2009, the project went bankrupt, and the opportunity moved to Miami bankruptcy court. Yeah. So hold on. Let's take a let's take a step back here because a lot of people will know about Turnberry. The Turnberry Isles is a big project, a huge community in Aventura, in North Miami. So these are the same developers of the properties there, and they decided after they bought the Fountain Blue in Miami Beach, they decided to have a sister hotel in Vegas and call it the Fountain Blue of Las Vegas. How much did they end up spending on this thing? During the first two years of construction, they spent $2 billion. Mm -hmm. And at the time that the project went bankrupt, it was estimated that it had about $800 million left to go. Yeah, so they spent $2 billion. Now, they bought it right at a point when Vegas was doing extremely well. Their gambling receipts had been growing by double digits each year. The population had been growing. And I mean, it was a hot place to be. So there was a lot of building going on. It seemed like the perfect time. And then 2008 crash happened. And you write in your article that Bank America basically said, no more. We're not going to lend you the money to finish the hotel, right? Right, right. Bank of America had a commitment to lend the remaining $800 million for the project to be completed. Mm -hmm. But they decided that considering the state of the economy and considering the bank's finances, they backed out of their commitment and they left Turnberry Associates hanging. Yeah. And I guess Turnberry Associates couldn't get another lender. They couldn't find anybody to finish the project. They had $2 billion in to purchase it, plus I think they were about 70% complete, so they had put quite a lot more money into it. And since they couldn't finish the property, they went bankrupt in Miami court. Is that where Icon stepped in? Yeah. So Carl Icon very aggressively pursued this opportunity from the second it seemed that it was entering bankruptcy. 157 parties hmm. expressed interest in the Fountain Blue opportunity. Out of those 157 parties, only eight signed confidentiality agreement to be able to review very detailed information about the property. Ultimately, three bids were submitted to the Miami Bankruptcy Court, 
but Carl Icahn's bid was the only qualified bid, and therefore it was accepted at $150 million. So originally, Turnberry Associates paid $2 billion plus improvements, and he picked up this property, which was 70% complete, for $150 million. Is that right? Actually, Turnberry Associates, way before 2005, they built two residential towers behind the Fountain Blue Las Vegas Hotel. Mm-hmm. So at the time that Turnberry acquired the Fountain Blue Miami Beach, Turnberry already owned the 24 and a half acres of land on the Strip. Yeah. But after acquiring Fountain Blue Miami Beach and proceeding to build the hotel, $2 billion were invested in constructing the partially built hotel mm-hmm. that currently sits there. Wow. So back then you write that the cost of the land when Turnberry was buying it. I mean, there was one hotel, the New Frontier Hotel, that went for $1.2 billion, which was $34 million an acre. But Icon's purchase price was just a bit over $6 million an acre. It's astonishing, really. Yeah, it's pretty interesting what a market cycle can do to the value of the property. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, one of the warnings I'm sure you're going to have at the end of this discussion about investing in real estate. So he got 70% complete. Now, what was his plan as looking back on it and trying to figure this out? Was his plan to buy it, improve it, finish the hotel, and then resell it? Or did he do something differently? From the get-go, it seemed that Carl Icahn planned to just hold the property in its current situation and wait for the market to improve. Mm-hmm. He really didn't make any attempt to spend even a dollar on a property. He actually went off and immediately auctioned off all of the building's furniture, mattresses, beds, wallpaper, carpet. He just tried to get all the money he could out of the existing improvement, Yeah, which is a big vote of not having confidence. Yeah. So he was just treating this like a distressed company that he would buy on the New York Stock Exchange, hold it for a while, and then wait for conditions to improve, and then resell it. He was not desiring, I guess, to be in the real estate business, to be a Vegas real estate owner. So he spent $150 million and I think he got about $5 million. Was that correct for all the furniture and the carpets and the wallpaper? From reading a few articles online, that was my estimate. Mm-hmm. One of the most prominent buyers of the furniture was the Plaza Hotel in downtown Las Vegas, which based off of a few articles, seemed to transform itself into a luxury hotel just by acquiring the Fountain Blues furniture. They must have been happy. Which was a pretty interesting read in itself. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They seemed to be very, very excited about being able to acquire all the furniture. Yeah, so he was getting rid of the furniture, trying to lower his costs, and they were picking up furniture for pennies on the dollar. You know, it's when... Distress hits these markets, a lot of these interesting deals, you know, come out. So I understand that there's information that he's looking to sell the property now. What is he looking to sell the property for? In November 2016, he awarded the listing of the property to brokerage firm CBRE. And based off of a few articles I researched online, it seems that the asking price is approximately $650 million. Mm-hmm. And People assume that it's going to be selling, you know, within 5% of that price. My guest is 
Josh Barukim, and he's written an article about this deal. He's the founder of BehindTheDeals.com, where you'll find more articles about high-profile real estate. And we're going to get into some of the numbers here. Josh, so he purchased the property for 150, got a couple million or five million, whatever it was, for selling off the furniture. Now he's listing it some nine years later or eight years later for 650 million. You think he's going to get a price within five percent of that? That sounds like a pretty good deal, but Let's break down some of the numbers here because I think my listeners would be interested to know really how this stuff works and how you kind of figure out what the rates of return are and how you figure this out. So you actually did this work on your article, which I really loved. So let's go through some of the numbers. So the purchase price was $150 million. Now, there were acquisition costs to buy that. What do you estimate those would be? We estimated those to be about $2.5 million, which included due diligence costs, closing costs, legal fees, okay. and other costs to acquire the property. All right. So he's at $152,500,000. What about carrying costs for the property? I mean, we all have to pay property taxes, insurance, and maintenance. What did you estimate that that was for each year? We estimated that at $5 million a year. Okay. So over a seven-year period or so, that's $35 million. We've got the proceeds of the furniture that's in here. Other expenses. Yeah, I guess the city demanded that since it was an eyesore that he covered the building, I guess with a special tarp or whatever they do, and you estimate that cost a million bucks to do. Correct. And then when you take the sale price, you put it at $625 million less commissions of $25 million. That's a good business to be in, don't you think? <laughs> <laughs> That's a nice commission. And when you estimated that, what did you estimate his actual rate of return, considering all the money in, all the money out, the timing of all that money? What did you figure? Considering an all-cash purchase, we projected a return of approximately 20%. Per year? Per year, a compounded return of 20% per year. That's pretty spectacular. I mean, it's one thing perhaps to make that with a small amount of money, but on a $150 million purchase, that's pretty difficult to do, right? Absolutely. Also considering the bare minimum work that mm -hmm. Carl Icahn did to the property yeah. makes it even more impressive. Right. Now, there's another boon here for him, and that is that there were tax savings on all of this. Tell us a little bit about how much you think he would have saved in taxes, because real estate has certain tax advantages, and he gets to write off a lot of these expenses. Tell us about that. Right. Real estate investors can deduct operating expenses of the property and depreciation expenses from their annual income. So based off of an all-cash purchase, considering the $5 million of annual holding costs, that would be $5 million that would be deducted from his taxable income. Mm -hmm. Also, considering the value of the improvements on the property, we projected that approximately $3 million a year of depreciation could be deducted from his income. Mm -hmm. So... Based off of that $8 million by which his taxes would be lowered, that would result in a $2.5 million annual tax savings based off of a 35% tax rate. And that's annual? That's annual. Right. So multiply that times, I guess, six or seven, you're talking about $13 million. So his annual tax savings, you think, are about $4.5 million then? Correct. Not bad. So I guess if you added that, to the $625 million or whatever the sale price is with all the expenses, that brings his rate of return even above the 20% annual. So let's talk about some of the lessons that we can learn from this. By the way, I'm speaking with Josh Barukim. 
He is the founder of BehindTheDeals.com. Let me know if you guys listening out there like this kind of information. I'll do more of this, but I find this fascinating to see how these deals get done in the real world and some of the things that we can learn for it, which are lessons that we can apply to all investing, whether it's real estate or other kinds of investing. So let's talk about some of those lessons. Lesson number one, understand the risks and the challenges of ground-up development renovations and expansions of existing hotels, or rather compared to the fact of just renovating and expanding an existing hotel, which may be a less risky option. Tell us about that. Yeah, sure. So ground-up development brings with it several risks that don't come with acquiring and renovating existing buildings. One of those risks is financing. Developers rely on banks to provide financing during a construction project which, as in the case of the Fountain Blue Las Vegas, can stop at any point in time. Mm -hmm. So developers need to consider what's the worst case scenario if the financing dries up. Oftentimes, that worst case scenario is insolvency and the project stopping in its tracks. That's a big risk because now you're talking about not just the loss of some of your money or a fluctuation in the value of your, your money. You're talking about a real loss if you go into bankruptcy pretty much you know, you lose everything. But I also think one of the risks that is important here is that whenever taking out a bank loan for anything, remember that banks can call their loans. They normally don't do that. They normally don't want to do that. But in times of difficulty, of deep recession or whatever, they may just say no. And they may just say, hey, we want our money back and we want it right now. So you have to be very, very careful. Hey, Josh, unfortunately, we are out of time. My guess is Josh Barukim, again, find this deal and other deals at BehindTheDeals.com. And Josh, this was really informative, and I look forward to reading some more of your work and having you back on. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. This is Steve Pomerantz, and you're listening to The Steve Pomerantz Show. This is the point in the show where I'd like to answer listener questions. This question is from Confused in Seattle. She writes, Steve, help me. I'm so confused. I have money to invest. It's not a lot, but it's important to me. I'm young enough, I think, to put money into the stock market, but I don't know which way to turn. Some experts say only buy index funds because so few mutual funds do better. Then I hear about a great fund manager who has beaten the market for many years. And then I hear about Warren Buffett, who has earned more than the market for 40 years and has made millionaires by the hundreds. What's the truth? What's the right thing to do? Well, Confused in Seattle, these are great questions, and they are the perfect ones to ask. But before I get started, let me say, the most important thing to do first is to get invested. Whether it's index funds or stock mutual funds, the earlier you start, the better. Okay, now I'll answer your question. And you're probably not going to like the answer either, because the answer is, it depends. And I'm not waffling here. We just need to drill down a little deeper, and it will become clear. If you're investing in large multinational companies that are U.S. companies, I say buy the index fund. By the way, when I say buy the index fund, I'm also referring to exchange-traded funds or ETFs because fundamentally they're both the same. The index of the S&P 500, for example, is made up of 500 very large corporations domiciled in the U.S. And it's very hard for a mutual fund manager to consistently make more than an index. If there are a few who do, it's probably because they're taking on more risk than you would want. Think of it this way. Active mutual funds charge higher fees, so they have to do way better just to make up the extra costs. This is very hard to do. 
Even Warren Buffett is having trouble beating the S&P 500 these days because he has to buy very big companies, and it's hard to beat the averages. Buffett made the lion's share of his wealth in earlier days when his investment partnership was much, much smaller. Now, as you move to smaller companies, there are more managers who can beat their indexes. There are mid-sized companies, we call them mid-cap funds and small-cap funds, and more managers can beat those index funds. And it's the same when you go overseas. The index funds investing overseas have fixed allocations to certain countries. Sometimes it's just better not to be in a particular country. I mean, did you really want to be in Spain or Italy over the past few years? A good manager will choose wisely and keep you away from problem countries. You know, in the 90s, for example, most overseas managers beat index funds because they stayed away from Japan. Japan was terrible for almost 15 years. It didn't take a rocket scientist to know this, so staying out of Japan led to significant outperformance for overseas mutual fund managers. So, bottom line, if you're just starting out, pick an index fund that lets you add investments at no charge. Index funds are fine when you're starting out. Make sure the funds have no load, as the saying goes, and dollar cost averaging will work very, very well for you. If you have a chunk of money, diversify among index funds and some regular mutual funds, depending on the categories I just mentioned. Morningstar is a great source of information for all this. If you don't want to do it yourself, find a competent, trustworthy investment advisor or financial planner to help you. So, Confused in Seattle, thanks for asking. And you know, you can always get to us at stevepomeranz.com. That's steve, P-O-M-E-R-A-N-Z, dot com. You know, I just want to remind you that any interviewee's appearance on The Steve Pomeran Show does not represent any endorsement or confer any opinion whatsoever, either positive or negative, by The Steve Pomeran Show or any media by which The Steve Pomeran Show is distributed. Thank you so much for joining us. Investing involves risk, and listeners should carefully consider their own investment objectives and never rely on any single chart, graph, or marketing piece to make decisions. The radio show is intended for informational purposes only, is not a recommendation to buy or sell any securities, and should not be considered tax-legal investment advice. Please contact your tax-legal financial professional with questions about your specific needs and circumstances. The information in the show is obtained from sources believed to be reliable. However, their accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. All data are driven from publicly available information and has not been independently verified by United Capital. Neither United Capital nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording, and any liability as a result of this recording is expressly disclaimed. This recording should not be relied upon to evaluate any potential transaction. United Capital is not giving tax, legal, investment advice by means of this recording, and this recording does not establish a client relationship with United Capital.